Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, a trade and globalization editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is going to be about the race to find a vaccine for COVID-19. When one is found, it is going to be the hottest commodity on the planet. So the question is, how should the vaccines be distributed? How do we decide who gets what? We're going to be joined by a very special guest. Thank you. My name is Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala. I'm the chair of the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, Gavi, and I am former finance minister of Nigeria and current WHO and African Union COVID-19 envoy. Keen listeners will recall that Dr. Ngozi also happens to be a candidate to be the next Director General of the World Trade Organization, the WTO. But this episode isn't really going to be about that. So, as Samaya will confirm, I have been obsessed. First, it was personal protective equipment. But now, all I can think about is the economics of vaccines. Yeah, can confirm. Okay, so to be fair, a lot of us are very interested in in a vaccine. A vaccine is a ticket to normal, um, and I I really, really desperately want normal. What I've been thinking about, though, is is not whether we're going to get a vaccine, but what happens after we've got one. Because lives are at stake, it's going to be really, really important to get this right. Agreed. Okay, so so let's talk about what is going on right now. As of the beginning of August, there were 165 coronavirus vaccines in development. Of those, 26 were in clinical trials. And of those, six were in the final phase three trial. So that's the the bit where thousands of people get given the vaccine and and you see how it works or, or if it works. It's after that phase three that you can start distributing the vaccine but we are at least months away from that happening. As these vaccines are being developed and tested, governments are already racing to make sure that their citizens will be first in line. By late July, the Trump administration had already put in orders for hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines from companies like Pfizer, Novavax, and and AstraZeneca. And the British government has been doing the same. But here's the concern. What if all the rich countries buy up all the vaccines? What if they build stockpiles, leaving none for people in poorer countries? And what if poorer countries just can't afford to pay the prices the richer governments are offering? If the vaccines only go to the rich countries, it's the equivalent of of being on an airplane and having those masks fall down to give you oxygen, but having them only fall down if you're a person sitting in first class. Enter Gavi. It turns out that the problem of unequal access to vaccines has been a problem in the past. And we have an organization dedicated to fixing it, Gavi. Here's Dr. Ngozi. Gavi started, in a sense, as a, a response to a market failure where children in developed countries were able to get vaccinated and their lives saved And those life-saving vaccines took years to get to children in developing countries, meaning that a large number of unnecessary deaths because the vaccines were not affordable or accessible. So 
A group came together, Bill Gates, Gordon Brown, the World Bank, Rockefeller Foundation, and launched the Vaccine Alliance, Gavi, to solve this market failure. And essentially, what they did was to put together an organization uh, with a partnership, an unusual and interesting partnership that comprised governments, donor governments, governments from developing countries, beneficiaries. We had multilateral institutions. We had the private sector in terms of pharmaceutical companies and vaccine manufacturers. We had, we had civil society and independent scientists and, and other people in, in public health on the board coming together to try to guide what this organization would do. So that's, that's how Gavi started. And since then, Gavi has been able to vaccinate 760 million children and save 13 million lives. And the objective is in the next five years, from 2021 to 2025, to vaccinate another 300 million, saving 8 million lives. Lastly, Gavi has been able to procure vaccines at a very, very reasonable and affordable Prices where a dose might cost $100 in a rich country, it could go down to $25, depending on the vaccine, even $3.50, $2.50. And this is incredible. We asked what today's problem would be if there were no Gavi. Fundamentally, if there were no Gavi or CEPI, the problem would be that there will be certain countries, certain populations left behind. They would not have access And the fundamental problem we're trying to solve is to make sure that we have an inclusive approach to getting vaccines to everyone. Rich countries do not grab the production and leave poor countries waiting in the queue. So at this point, you might be thinking, look, in normal times, I understand why pharmaceutical companies might not be so hot on sharing their intellectual property. But this is different. We are in a global pandemic now. This this virus is raging around the world, killing thousands of people. Surely, once one company works out how to make a vaccine, they'll just put the vaccine recipe online, and then everyone will be able to make it. It turns out, making a vaccine is really complicated. Vaccines are an unusual, I don't know what to call it, an unusual medical phenomenon. They, they can't just be produced by any manufacturer anywhere. It requires certification by the WHO. It is a sophisticated process. It has to be a careful process. And therefore, it's only manufactured in very few places that are certified. Therefore, many developing countries don't have this and they don't have access. So in normal times, for some diseases, you can get around the fact that big pharmaceutical companies control who gets the medicines. Under WTO rules, there is a public health exception for intellectual property. So governments can use compulsory licensing and basically ignore the patent rights and find someone local to produce medicines. But as Dr. Ngozi said, vaccines are so tricky that many developing countries won't have local manufacturers who can do this anytime soon. In practice, this means that only a few places are going to make these vaccines, and everyone else is going to rely on trade. We should next mention the importance of financing. 
It turns out that vaccines are also super expensive to make, and you have to spend a lot of money up front. So think scientists, laboratories, and clinical trials, things like that. Trying to make a vaccine is also super risky. Imagine spending all that money and then the vaccine not working. And even after you do find one that works, you then need even more money to produce enough doses. So you have to build a factory. It needs a lot of equipment. You need all those ingredients. Then you'll need glass vials, syringes to be able to administer the vaccines. And there just aren't a bunch of idle vaccine manufacturing facilities sitting around nowadays. The ones that are out there are being used to to make other vaccines for diseases that still exist and need to be treated. So you need a lot of stuff and a lot of money. This is all really expensive. And the worry is that the companies on their own can't raise the financing they need to make the, the billions of doses that the world needs. At this point, we, we really want the science to be the constraint, not money. But again, people are thinking about this. A bunch of different organizations, Gavi, the WHO, the World Health Organization, something called CEPI that we'll get back to, all of those have banded together and they've formed something called the COVAX facility. The COVAX facility has two aspects. One is... One side of it is designed for high-income and upper-middle-income countries to participate in the facility as self-paying customers. Then there are 92 developing countries, low- and lower-middle-income countries, who need assistance, if you will, support, to be able to afford access to these vaccines. And what Gavi is doing is launching what is called a financial instrument called the Advanced Market Commitment, to incentivize manufacturers and producers upfront with the assurance of prices, reasonable prices and adequate volumes, create a market, if you will, for the COVID vaccine so that they'll be able to produce the kinds of volumes needed for all these countries. And the idea here is that everyone gets together and says, we are definitely going to buy this many doses of vaccines. And together, that's a lot. And so the producers have the incentives to make enough. They're guaranteed a really, really big market, and together the buyers can get a really good price. And with everybody joining up, you can make sure that the vaccines are also handed out fairly. The reality of this vaccine and this virus is that there is just not going to be enough capacity for everyone to get a vaccine immediately. CEPI published a survey on on August 5th saying that there was capacity to produce between 2 and 4 billion doses of a vaccine by the end of 2021. There are around 8 billion people in the world. So so there just aren't going to be enough. And that's assuming it's one dose per person. We don't know if people might need multiple doses. The goal of this plan, though, would be that 2 to 4 billion doses would be enough so that every country that signs up would get enough to vaccinate 20% or so of their population. And so this would cover healthcare workers in vulnerable populations, including the elderly, really the folks that desperately need the vaccine the most. So basically the idea here, you know, the economics of this is that with COVAX, you can get a better outcome for everyone. You can pool demand and everyone is better off because these companies have these incentives and the money to make huge quantities of this vaccine. So you benefit by pooling demand, but there's also a benefit from pooling supply. 
And this is where that other organization that we just mentioned, CEPI, that's where that one comes in. CEPI stands for the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. It organizes the research and and the manufacturing supply side of vaccines. It offers some funding, and in exchange, it gets universities and pharmaceutical companies to promise to share their vaccine once they find one. And so their approach to going out to a number of universities and pharmaceutical companies is to end up with a portfolio of vaccines and not just one. For COVID-19 in particular, CEPI has nine different vaccine candidates in its portfolio, including many of the ones you would have heard about if you follow the news on this stuff. The one the University of Oxford is developing with AstraZeneca, Moderna's candidate, Inovios, and, and a whole lot more. And with this portfolio approach, you reduce risk. It's better to have a shot at one of nine working than to bet everything you have on one vaccine that ends up failing. So this is all lovely. It's great. Everyone is working together. It makes everyone better off. Chad's favorite. You pull the demand side, you pull the supply side, and and everyone shares the winnings. But there seems to be a problem. This scheme is open right now for governments to sign up to. The the deadline is the end of August, so there is still some time. And lots of the demanding countries have signed up, but some don't seem to want to join in. As of August 10th, a number of major countries have not publicly revealed whether they intend to be part of this program or not. And so there's no word from countries like the United States, China, Germany, France, and some other big supplying countries whether they're going to be part of COVAX. So let's think through why this could fail. And and imagine you are a rich vaccine-producing country and your president's name rhymes with Ronald Grump. You might be so certain that one of your manufacturers is going to find the vaccine first that you just don't think there's any benefit from from sharing. Alternatively, uh, it could be that you think the political risk of entering this scheme is just too great. Imagine if, you know, it's your country that finds the, the vaccine first. And imagine the headlines if you start to see vaccines being shipped away to other countries before everyone at home has a dose. If you're rich, maybe it's better just to to buy up doses of everything on your own so you can be sure you'll get enough that way, and then you avoid those angry headlines. I think my explanation would go one step further than that. So basically right now, some governments don't trust other governments not to impose export restrictions if they were to find a vaccine first. Companies can sign up all they want for these distribution schemes, but everybody remembers what happened back in March and April with personal protective equipment. And then, of course, when the Trump administration reportedly tried to buy Curavac, a company based in Germany that was researching a potential coronavirus vaccine. But it's not just today. When there were earlier outbreaks in, in history, we've also have experienced that countries choose not to play nice and share even when they're supposed to. In 1976, the American government blocked vaccine exports to Canada that had been placed with American manufacturers after an outbreak of swine flu. And in 2009, a number of rich countries refused to distribute vaccines to poor countries when the H1N1 pandemic hit, despite having promised that they would do so. 
Now, in both 1976 and 2009, neither of those outbreaks turned out to be that bad, so failing to share wasn't that big a deal at the time. But certainly failing to share this time around would be a really, really big deal. And so to summarize, the risk for a government today is that you sign up to the scheme and you're just left looking like a chump when a vaccine gets manufactured in the United States and the U.S. government decides to apply export restrictions, vaccinate all of its own citizens, and not send you anything at all. It's probably safer just to try to go out and and buy up dosages for your own citizens. So to build on this um, airplane analogy, I think the problem is that we're not in a world where we can we can design the plane so that air masks pop down above the right seats. We're in a world where first class has the masks, and and everyone in coach is having to kind of pop up to first class and say, "Hi, do you want to do you want to hand over some of your masks?" <laughs> and unsurprisingly, first class isn't so keen. Most of the the vaccine manufacturing capacity in the world is in in China, India, the U.S., and Europe. Those are the same places that imposed export bans on on PPE and medical supplies early in the pandemic. So, you know, you can set up all these lovely risk-sharing schemes that you want, but if governments stop the sharing from actually happening, or if governments think that everyone else is going to stop the sharing from happening, then they're not going to work. And this is really too bad because I do think there are a number of reasons why governments should take part in these schemes, even the really rich countries. First, obviously, there's the ethical argument. You know, we should care about human suffering everywhere. But second, if governments start hoarding vaccines, they're likely to face retaliation. We know how interconnected supply chains are and how things can get disrupted. One of the interesting things that I've learned researching the the details of vaccines And again, the science hasn't settled yet on what ingredients are are going to be needed and what aren't. But one important ingredient are these things called adjuvants that help boost a person's immune response to, to a vaccine that they might take. It's sort of like a supercharger. But one of the most important adjuvants for vaccines comes from something called the soap bark tree which is grown mostly in Chile and and processed in Sweden and not available really anywhere else in the world. And so the concern would be that if vaccine manufacturing countries refuse to share their vaccine output with countries like Chile or Sweden, then, then those countries might refuse to share their inputs, these adjuvants, and the vaccine just wouldn't be able to be manufactured at all. With all those reasons out there, we asked Dr. Ngozi how hard it would be for a politician to convince voters that they should share. I would have said that this would have been extremely difficult for political leaders to convince populations that they should share something life-saving like vaccines. I would have said, yes, this would be extremely hard, but no longer. The trajectory of the pandemic has shown ordinary citizens that there's not a normal approach to this. They've seen countries that have had low rates of infection down have spikes again. And some of those spikes have come simply from letting people, either their citizens who traveled elsewhere or citizens from other countries in. So unless a country is prepared to be in a permanent lockdown, which is impossible, they've got to think beyond borders. And citizens are now seeing that for themselves, that we need another approach to this vaccine, to this pandemic, to solving the problem? So I hope so. And and obviously it is Dr. Ngozi's job to be positive about these things. 
But I suppose I worry that in a world in which there are travel restrictions, Gronald Grump will be just fine saying, okay, you can't come in. And, you know, I worry that the reality here is pretty is pretty zero sum. So one more vaccine for your grandmother means one fewer vaccine for my child. That is a, a trade-off that, that no politician is going to want to make. Put another way, no voter is going to reward their elective representatives for sharing vaccines with people in other countries before they've got one, no matter how deserving they are. I guess I should note that it used to be Chad's job to be the cynic on everything to do with Trump, and, and now it's my job to be the cynic on, on everything else. <laughs> That's okay. Before we go, we thought it would only be right to ask Dr. Ngozi a few WTO-related questions, since she is also one of the candidates in the running to be the WTO's next director general. So we asked whether fixing the WTO would be harder than coordinating COVAX. The WTO job will certainly be harder. But every challenge is an opportunity. It will be harder because the organization is seen as many, as dysfunctional at the moment, as semi-paralyzed, and therefore trying to unwind the paralysis and solve the problems will be harder. It will require working with members. It requires leadership. It requires the ability to forge consensus. It requires political heft, and above all, it requires a reformer. It doesn't require business as usual. It has to be business unusual. We also asked her what the role of the WTO in all of this should be. I think that the WTO has an absolute opportunity with the pandemic to help set the rules that govern trade in the life-saving commodities that we need in this pandemic. This is actually a time for the WTO to shine, and it can do so by reviewing existing rules, seeing where they need to be strengthened, where they may need to be updated and changed, seeing what is needed to make sure that members respect these rules, and then above all, carrying on that discussion and conversation to see whether there'll be a need for new rules underpinning trade, underpinning intellectual property rights, underpinning licensing rights to produce uh, these drugs going forward. Well, I for one am looking forward to these new rules, uh, fixes for the WTO, and why not some hugs for everybody? And with that, an enormous thank you to Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala for joining us. And for me, thanks to Prashant Yadav at the, at the Center for Global Development for explaining to me details of vaccine manufacturing and vaccine supply chains. And a really big thanks to Tom Boyke, the director of the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Do check out the essay that Tom and I wrote for the latest issue of Foreign Affairs, The Tragedy of Vaccine Nationalism, only cooperation can end the pandemic. Thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy, who has been stripping out the sounds of my angry cats in this episode. And hey, also, I write without a byline. I get very little external validation and everything in the world is terrible right now. So, so if you enjoyed this episode or indeed any other episode, then then do tweet about it or just just share it wherever. Or you could just send us a nice email. That would That would be really great. It would make me happy too. But do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. 
So I think it might be time to retire the double underscore joke. We've been doing this for three years and I think that we've run out of jokes, to be honest. Um, So new ending. Um, This one is sung from the perspective of COVID-19. Come together right now over me. Take 45. <laughs> that, w- that was good. 